Welcome to The Nation's Podcast. On today's episode, we sit down with a good friend of mine, Benji Nolo. Benji's an abolitionist. Uh, He's a filmmaker. Uh, He works with an organization called Exodus Cry, taking on sexual slavery, human trafficking, as well as the porn industry. And uh, his movies, Nefarious and Liberated, can be seen on YouTube and Netflix. And this conversation's a deep one. It's rich, and I really hope you enjoy it. Well, Benji, thanks for being here. Um, gosh, got to know you uh, last summer, and it's just been amazing following your journey for the last six months, and uh, we've been dying to have you on the podcast, so yeah. so thanks for being here. So here we are. We're two dudes talking about women's issues, right? Um, and, and gosh, I mean, Facebook's hot right now with people on both sides of the fence, and so that's a little interesting, I guess, for us two guys talking about it, but what got you so involved with the line of work in which you work? You know, I, I think that you can, you can debate for or against, you know, some people who maybe lean more conservative or you have people that maybe lean more liberal with regards to their views of sexuality and, and what's appropriate. Um, but again, the thing that I would, you know, push back on is, is the idea of the single story. Yeah. And so you take a magazine, for example, like, Cosmopolitan magazine. It's the most popular woman's magazine of all time. And there's no deviation from the type of image that is presented on the cover of their magazine month after month after month after month after month after month, year after year after year after year. It's the same image of the, you know, objectified, hypersexualized woman with the come hither look. And so I think, you know, again, what we would want to say is is not necessarily that oh, this is so bad, although some, some people that may be what inherently where they land. But I think, okay, well, even if, even if you, you think this is a good thing, shouldn't we broaden the message? You know, shouldn't a magazine like Cosmopolitan, uh, Cosmopolitan magazine be celebrating women who are excelling in business, yeah. who are ex- excelling in athletics, who are excelling in politics, who are excelling in academics who are excelling as mothers who are excelling in all these other areas of life. And so, you know, my starting point is I, is God's beauty. Right. And he's not beautiful because he has pouty lips and long eyelashes. Right. There's something inherently beautiful in the human species that's so much more prolific than the way that it is being packaged in our image based media. And so that's, to me, like that is the, the fundamental critique uh, is let's, let's broaden the message so that women who feel drawn to these other aspects of life and society can also feel valued and celebrated and seen and cherished, you know, that a person wouldn't be qualified in or out based on whether or not they have the quote unquote look. Like I remember... Back a while ago, there was this um, Kelly Clark, this snowboarder in the Olympics, just killing it and winning all these gold medals. And I thought, you know, it's sad because she should be on the front of that magazine, but she'll never be on the front of that magazine, right? Because she doesn't have the look. And how sad is that for, you know, it's like if you're an 11 year old girl and you want to become a flan, well, why isn't she? Well, because she doesn't have the look. And, And so 
that to me is the bigger problem. So I see the, the Super Bowl halftime show as a microcosm of a larger problem in our culture that has a very narrow script regarding what it means to be an empowered woman. Kelly's a good friend of mine, and I, oh. I was able to kind of walk with her well, part of, through her journey of you know becoming an Olympian, and, oh, wow. and uh, it's just I had no idea. so cool. Yeah, she's she's an incredible like she's one of my she's one of my all time favorite heroes, and uh, I re- <laughs> I remember when I, the first time I saw her ride a half pipe, it, I was like she's riding as big as the guys go because wow. normally for so long women's sports was like yeah the men do it at this level and the women do it at this level. Well, she neutralized that wow. pretty quick. And, and one of the videos I made, my buddy Tommy Shasheen was an Olympic halfpipe rider. And he's like, yeah, Kelly goes bigger than I do. He goes, off the record, of course. <laughs> <laughs> but I, with permission, I and put that in the movie and it made it great. But anyway, awesome. <laughs> Kelly's a great example. There is one exception to that, Sean White. Oh, yeah, Sean's... He's Every, not even human. Everybody does. It's like you watch these contests and everybody's like pushing it to this certain level. And, you know, you're just kind of watching it all unfold like, dang, like these guys are really going for it. And then he comes out. It's kind of like how Christian Asoy was back in the yeah, day on the yeah, half pipes. Yeah. Like dudes were getting, you know, eight foot or whatever. But, and he comes out and he's like 20 feet above right, the ramp. Like, yeah. And that's how it was with Sean White. He just launches and you're like... How, How is he, he going to land? How right. is he going to land? Right. right, yeah. Oh, man. Well, a in, little insider trading, too. I heard that uh, Sean might be thinking about going another round of oh, the Olympics. that would be. It, that could be dude, cool. A little that, comeback. I mean, just three in a row. I don't know how you go for a fourth gold medal, but. The, the Olympics are something special. I, you know, people obviously, again, have different opinions about it. I love the human interest stories. Yeah. And every time it comes around, I'm like, I'm just going to take two weeks off and watch the whole thing. I rarely actually do that, but I get so drawn into it. And there's something about continuity of athletes over years where it's just like, I remember with Michael Phelps, it starts to become part of like this thing that you look yeah. forward to of like yeah. rooting for that athlete. Oh, and so, it's so good. That would be awesome if Sean came back. Again. Yeah. I'd love to see Kelly come back too, because man, she, she I mean, I think she's the most winningest. Wow. Snowboarder of all time. She has more medals than Sean. So I was on a team back in Kansas City, a worship team. I was the prayer leader for um, back during that time. And she had just, this worship leader, Misty Edwards, had just released this album during those Olympics or like right before the Olympics. So Kelly Clark, before Her run? she would run, <laughs> she'd be like, Lip, lipping yeah. the lyrics like she was like listening to those songs so we were all back in Kansas City just going go go yeah, it's amazing yeah <laughs> Kelly would always do that and she'd be singing like you know headphone singing yeah <laughs> she was doing Misty Edwards we were like that's go, awesome. go. And then she won the gold that's so like, cool dude the anointing you ushered in the anointing she would always on her, <laughs> on her board too she would always have this sticker that says Jesus I cannot hide my love because um, one of her main sponsors was like hey you know we're gonna pay you all this money and that's prime real estate that's like mm. on a on a NASCAR race car, it's like this, you know, the hood of your, right. like if we're paying you all this money, right. you put our sticker on the top. And she's like, no, I have my Jesus sticker there. And they're like, well, you don't have a contract then. She goes, and she held firm and they wow. backed down. Oh, and, wow. and so it's, she's her whole career. She had that sticker, but anyways, wow. we could, we could talk That's all day so about cool. Kelly Clark. And That's if you don't so know cool. who Kelly Clark is, man, watch some of those old videos. She's, she's unbelievable, unbelievable. Uh, um, athlete. So, well, Hey, um, let's get back to the liberated. You made this film. I, you have a bullseye 
on your head. I mean, from I mean, the porn industry for the films that you've made. Yeah. I, I just can't. You're, you're an amazing documentary filmmaker. First of all, just I, I really admire your work. But the subject of your work is just remarkable. How did you? Um, how did what drove you to make the film Liberated, and what did you learn through the process? Oh man, yeah. So we had just gotten done making a film on global sex trafficking, and we wanted to dig deeper into the underpinnings, the root of why this was going on. So in a sense, our first documentary, Nefarious Merchant of Souls, was like the what of what's going on. You know, it was like the just a snapshot again of global sex trafficking. And, and so, so coming off of that project, we thought, okay, let's dig deeper into the roots of the cultural roots of why this is going on. And we had this idea of doing a documentary about the larger sexual culture in America that um, was cultivating so much demand for illicit sex. And, uh, and as one small section of, you know, our idea for this film would be going down to spring break and talking with young adults about their attitudes about sex. So I had grown up on MTV spring break, yeah. you know, and, uh, and we thought this would be just a environment where young adults would speak candidly about their views of sex and, and probably have a bit of humor to it. And we weren't imagining it being this super heavy, intense thing. And, um, but we went down there and we spent several weeks there. And, and on the last day of our first trip, the last afternoon, we ran into a situation where there was some, uh, this larger party on the beach and there were just um, all of these girls that were being groped and, and sexually violated. And, and we left really haunted and horrified by what we were seeing. And it, it had, it, it caused this question to percolate in us about whether this was part of the normal experience of what women face when they go down to spring break. So we felt like we needed to do a deeper dive. And so we went back the next year and the next year and the next year. I think we shot for like five or six years going down to spring break. And, um, and it turns out that, uh, that the backdrop of spring break were these instances of young women who were being sexually violated. And so what it became for us was the sort of the collision point between the way in which boys are socialized in our culture, the way in which girls are socialized in our culture, the culture's um, story about sex, and then the, the collision point of those three things in, um, in the realm of sexual assault and sexual violation. And so... Uh, so that became a much bigger story. So it was this, like, again, just a side, you know, smaller section of the documentary that ended up becoming its own project and its own documentary. And so, so it took a while to kind of shape that and even realize what was happening because we had this vision for this other thing. And so this other film turned into several other projects and then Liberated became a film about young adult hookup culture. And, um, but again, the stakes... Uh, being a, the 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 severity of the violation mm -hmm. of sexual assault, and so um, so yeah, so we felt that that was a a compelling reason to dive deep into these issues. And as a, as a documentarian, I I just always find it 
incredibly personally meaningful and somehow satisfying to dive well below the the surface level of consciousness where we live our normal lives and to to see you know what what's the root of of a, what's happening you know a lot of the things that have become normal in our culture today and i think nefarious tries to shine a light on that wow i, I think you did um an incredible job uh, you know again just the courage it took to make a film like that have you seen much backlash i mean again you're connecting dots of um, our normal society leading to something, you know, uh, a rape culture. That's Those are strong connection points. Um, do you find much pushback on that from the Christian community, from people outside the community saying, no, this is, it's normal. They're just kids. They're just at spring break. Yeah, for sure. I mean, we, we've gotten it from all sides, you know, uh, with liberated, we ended up losing our largest donor. It was a donor that was giving between 250,000 and 400,000 a year to our organization. And, you know, and as soon as they heard that the gospel was not going to be explicitly presented in the film, Mm -hmm. they pulled their support. Um, and then we've gotten it from the other side as well, like with, with nefarious where, you know, we had a group of A-list actors that had pulled together and approached us and said, we want to do a red carpet for your film and blow this thing up and bring the media and get all this financial support behind it, but we need you to remove the spiritual content at the end. And again, you know, it was a situation where we just felt like our obligation was to the story yeah, and not to any one group trying to influence the outcome of whatever this project was supposed to be. And, and so that, you know, cost us a lot of influence on the secular side of things. Liberated has cost us a lot of influence on the faith-based side of things. Uh, but we're not into influence peddling, you know, and, and I, I, I'm passionate about that as a documentarian because I see so much of the arts becoming a, a system of conformity. And that's actually antithetical to the spirit of what the arts is supposed to be, right? Like we are supposed to be challenging the status quo. And, um, and I think, you know, especially in the church, we are just um, very uh, skeptical, you know, of anything that isn't towing the party line. And we're very uncomfortable with, we're, I mean, just to say it plainly, like in the church, we are very uncomfortable with artists, and uh, because they're nonconformists, because they are critical thinkers, because they, they will challenge and give pushback and want to see different perspectives, you know? And I think a lot of the way that our church culture and community has been developed is around the idea of like the man of God brings the teaching and it's really not perceived as an offering, but more as something to believed, be believed. And, um, and so it creates these communities of indoctrination, of loyalists, mm-hmm. of uh, conformity. And then, so you, you know, then you try to plant an artist in that environment and they're going to inherently, they're going to challenge and give pushback and critical thinking. And so um, it's difficult, you know, and I wish a lot of that, that terrain would be reformed and reshaped. Um, I have a lot of thoughts on all of that, but just to say that we don't fit in anyone's box, and but I think that's the right box that's to right. be in as a documentarian, and so um, yeah, it we've we've gotten it from all sides. I'm sure. Yeah, 
we have a common interest in uh, the Clapham sect. And when I think of radical followers of Jesus, that's kind of where my mind always goes because they weren't just rebelling against something. They were like actually moving the needle on culture. And I, I, as soon as I met you, I I think we started talking about this. It came up. Um, You're an abolitionist. Um, I love the whole new movement uh, that you're, that you're pushing and the awareness of that you're bringing to the Clapham sect, you know, and they were artists and they really moved the needle on, on culture through the arts, through these pamphlets and paintings. They started making the culture aware of like what slavery was actually doing. Speak to that a little bit. What, what got you interested in William Wilberforce, Hannah Moore, the Clapham sect? I think they're such a great model for what it means to be a Christian because you know the I th- I feel like Wilberforce was really following the the model and the lifestyle and the spirit of Christ and uh, and a lot you know Wilberforce is known for abolishing slavery but he abolished a lot more than that he was after animal rights and he was after uh, prison reform and he was after so many things I mean I I can't even remember the number of societies that he started or was a part of, but it's like dozens and dozens and dozens of them. And and so there was something internally that was going on him. And I believe that it was his way, his way of understanding what it meant to follow Jesus. And unfortunately, I think so much today we think of Christianity as something to believe instead of someone to become. But what Jesus modeled was a way of being in the world in which he was his he was disposed towards the towards the vulnerability of those around him, and and compelled by love and compassion to go and to help those who were falling through the cracks or impoverished or in need or sexually broken or whatever the case may be. Right, and his agenda was was to to manifest love and compassion and meaning and purpose and value into that person's life. And so, um, so yeah, I think like for us, you know, Wilberforce really stepped into that role in a way that we hadn't seen. And, you know, and he has, in my opinion, he's the, probably the greatest social reformer that the world has ever seen outside of Jesus himself. And, um, and so we take a lot of inspiration from, from Wilberforce because he wasn't just going around trying to get people to believe something. He was actually going out with the intention of loving people um, and in action and bringing change. And, um, and so, yeah, he's, he's been, you know, him and the entire Clapham sect have been like a huge inspiration to us for that reason. Yeah. That's so cool. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, uh, I hope to take a sabbatical here at, at some point, hopefully next year. And, uh, I want to go, um, spend a few months, mm. um, in England and, and do a more of a deep dive into their world because yeah, I, I just think so cool. uh, that was really a, a, they were a huge influence on, on nations and nations media. We, um, we looked to them and going, okay, well, God's going to work in the toughest of situations and he's going to redeem it. He's going to heal it. And we don't know how he's going to do it, but um, he's going to do it. And and we want to be a part of it. We want to feature those stories of when he does do it through people like, you know, the Clapham sect. And um, 
Yeah, and, and I, I just, like you said, I, I loved all the things that they were involved with. I mean, animal rights back in, mm-hmm. you know. Unheard of. Unheard of, like, and yeah. in, in including women in, in yeah. their, their meetings and everything. Yeah. It feels like all the things that we get ripped on in modern Christianity is the things that yeah. we really, we kicked the doors down, yeah. you know, 250 years ago. Yeah, <laughs> so, totally. And, and then just the knowledge of like, Lincoln, you know, basically copying everything that they did, the Clapham sect accomplished with the Emancipation Proclamation 30 years later, you know, many people are unaware that that's the gospel is what compelled that action. And I think we need to celebrate that as believers. I really do. What are, uh, what's the biggest misconception that you have run into in your line of work? Maybe personally and and one that you just see as, as a believer and, Mm -hmm. Uh, tease that out a little bit more. Um, yeah. What, what in your, in, in your line of work of, of being a part of identifying this modern day slavery, mm-hmm. um, and you know, what is it in that, in your discovery that you've been maybe surprised by, or that you have, uh, you have learned that's really shifted your worldview? Mm. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think, uh, you know, coming into this work, we were first drawn to it by the overt, visible justice, injustice, I should say, of people who whose lives were like kidnapped and then forced into a situation where they were being um, prostituted out by force. So, so those kind of like heartbreaking stories of people whose lives were literally accosted and and brought into captivity and then used in the most horrendous way and horrific way and violated. And, um, but like I was saying earlier, it's uh, always about reverse engineering. And so how does that happen? Like what, what was underneath that? And, and as we spent you know, literally years and years and years doing a lot of boots on the ground investigative journalism um, have really kind of in a sense rediscovered the 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 whole um, sex industry because there's a cover narrative about the sex industry that I think most people are informed by and it's this idea that there are people who choose prostitution there are people who are forced into prostitution it's this idea that you know prostitution or quote unquote sex work can be empowering for people mm-hmm. and sexually liberating and this and that and you know that well there's sex trafficking but then there's porn and porn's the sort of the glamorized version of the sex industry where this is really a subclass of just erotic human beings who you know particularly women who have you know no other course in life but to just you know go and have ravenous sex with anybody who will you know <laughs> who will engage with them right and and so I think the, the the commercial sex industry does a very good job and they spend billions of dollars to do this to create this cover narrative that has created all kinds of misconceptions and myths about what the sex industry is. And so our journey over the past 13 years has really been um, discovering the deeper truth about the sex industry and then helping to deconstruct those myths and connect people's consciousness with the with the deeper truth and and again this goes back to the work of Wilberforce you know he he 
was provoked, his conscience was, conscience was provoked by the injustice of slavery, and he actually believed that if people in parliament knew what I know, that they would strike this down and we would abolish this. And so he somewhat naively brought forth his first legislation during his you know, um, early term in, in the parliament, and, um, and, and it, was, it was struck down. Right, and because um, the fact is, people weren't ready to just embrace whatever it was that that he was presenting, and so the work for them for forty six years was to shift the locus of thought and the mass consciousness of society regarding this issue of slavery, and um, and there was a cover narrative, you know, at that time about what slavery was. There were cultural influencers and political figures who vehemently argued for the values of slavery. And so it took a generation to shift that mindset, to prepare them for the passing of legislation that would eradicate the system of slavery. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, the, the, the system of slavery and the system of injustice will always resist movements of freedom. And... Um, and because even after that, you know, then there was sharecropping and then there was Jim Crow laws. And then, you know, and so, so there's been such resistance to that movement of freedom. And so I, I believe that we're in that wrestle today. I believe that, that human trafficking is one of the three major forces of evil holding the planet hostage. Mm-hmm. And that what we are a part of is a m- movement of freedom to stand up against this injustice and to eradicate it. But the work is shifting mindsets about the sex industry. Satan roams about like an angel of light, right? He, he masquerades as this angel of light. And it, so there's a, there's a veil of deception over our society. There's a veil of deception over people's eyes about how they understand pornography, stripping, the sex industry. Um, and, and that, that veil has to be torn away before people will be ready to embrace legislation that would eradicate this industry. And, um, and so, yeah, I think just generally speaking, that is the, the work that we have cut out for us. And with Exodus Cry, where are you trying to break through? Um, with all that information, I mean, primarily through film. Um, is there are there other ways that you're trying to um, help people see the truth behind um, yeah. this mass, this this horrible reality of of human trafficking and modern day slavery? Yeah, for sure. Film is you know the kind of the tip of the arrowhead for us because it's about impacting culture. Culture is created by values, and and so. Uh, this, this, and, and you know, 42 million people in trapped in prostitution today. It's a hundred billion dollars. Just the sex trafficking component alone, what what the ILL would would define as sex trafficking, which is very narrow, is a hundred billion dollar per year industry. Jeez. So the scope of something like this cannot exist apart from a facilitating culture, apart from social lubricating factors that enable it to happen, apart from a cultural complicity of which we as a people, as a society, have bought into um, the subjugation and exploitation of the most vulnerable demographics of our population. Mm -hmm. And so for us, it is about going in and disrupting 
that facilitating culture with a different message. And we believe in the power of story. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, that goes back to Jesus, right? Like when he talked to the church or, you know, the religious community, he used Bible verse. When he talked to the world, he was telling stories and embedded in those stories were kingdom values. And so for us, you know, we, we are not, uh, pigeonholed into any one way of making films. You know, people say, are you a Christian film? Are you a non-Christian filmmaker? It's our thing is like, we're just telling stories. When wherever that story leads us, that's what we're going to tell. If there's a faith element, great. If there's not, great. But our stories will always be embedded with kingdom values. You know, Jesus went about critiquing the culture of his time, critiquing the religious community of his time, critiquing the system of the world, and then promoting um, values that would liberate people and free them. And so, so that's what we feel like we have stepped into. If you look at all three abolition movements in history, the transatlantic, the abolition of the transatlantic slave trade, the abolition of the Congolese at the turn of the century, and if you look at what's going on today with the rise of this third wave of abolition, every single one of them was pioneered by documentary film and by, um, or I should say media, you know, of some kind. So is the writing of Uncle Tom's Cabin, um, and the use of visual media, the the uh, Brooks slave ship mm-hmm. that uh, Granville Clark drew, and they they used these images and these stories to cultivate and to catalyze an abolition movement, a movement of freedom. And it's the same way at the turn of the century, the first ever documentary screenings were of uh, Alice Seeley's um, pictures of what was going on in the Congo. And um, they called it, she, she, they, they created a projector and she went throughout America and Europe taking these photographs of the enslavement of the Congolese and doing what they called magic lantern screenings. And she, they were the first ever documentary screenings. And, and there was those screenings that inspired a movement of freedom that ended up causing King Leopold III to have to relinquish his control over the Congolese and brought about the second great wave of abolition. And so today in our day, it's the same thing. It's being led by media storytellers um, that are going in and, and facing down, you know, these cultural giants and shifting values and perspectives and mindsets. And so... Yeah, we're in the trenches with that and, and just really passionate about um, covering these issues uh, in media and, and documentary film. Where do you get your stats? I feel like um, there are a lot of nonprofits out there, um, and and especially in this line of work, um, it's stat-driven. Mm-hmm. And uh, so where, where do you get your information? Where do you um, find those numbers? Mm-hmm. Well, fortunately for us, we have a great, uh, so I would, you know, she's not, I wouldn't actually call her a statistician, but that's kind of what she, she is. She, um, our uh, director of abolition, Lila Micklewaite, she uh, got her master's degree in policy and public affairs from USC and then work, went and worked for the United Nations in Geneva and then launched the first ever United Nations human trafficking project out of New York before coming and working for Exodus Cry. But she's an exceptional researcher. And so we, we you know, we spend a lot of time researching these things. And, um, and so, yeah, all, you know, peer-reviewed journals, uh, International Labor Organization, um, it, I would say 
that all the stats that we cite are always from some kind of credible source, even if those stats are, you know, lean towards being too conservative or or whatever. Um, we don't have a point in like trying to exaggerate or sensationalize anything because you know our our perspective is literally if this was happening to one person, we'd be doing the same thing. Yeah. And so, um, but uh, but yeah, so all the stats that that we cite and we've got sources for all this on our website. People can check it out at exoduscry.com. Um, we're very, very rigorous about the the type of research that we put forth and um, everything is always cited. So That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. we I greatly appreciate that. And yeah. uh, it's it's awesome that you pay so much, uh, such great attention to yeah. that. Um, talk to me about your on-ramp into ministry, into this calling with Exodus Cry. What was it that for you personally, that just goes, man, I, I, I'm dedicating the rest of my life to this. Hmm. Well, I had gone, you know, I, so for me, it goes, it goes way back. Um, I grew up in an unstable home situation. And so I really gravitated towards the arts as my escape and in a sense, my therapy. Um, and, uh, and so from, Really, it was middle school when the arts became a serious part of my life, and uh, and then all the way through high school, and then I had a scholarship to the Art Institute of Southern California, but I ended up opting to go to do film classes at Saddleback instead. Um, did that for a couple years, and then uh, and then I ended up uh, opening actually a martial arts studio. I I need to pay the bills, and I wasn't seeing how film was going to do that at that time, and so um, but yeah, later. Um, felt really, really called into um, just serving God and serving people. And so it was when I found out about the issue of human trafficking in 2007, early 2007. Actually, what's the date today? Today's February 3rd. Is it really? Yeah, yeah. Wow, that is, my mind is just like doing a (laughs) slow motion explosion. It was February 3rd. No way. 2007. When I first found out about this issue of human trafficking. Wow. And here you are. Wow. That is, <laughs> that just blew my mind. Um, and here That's we awesome. are. Wow. That is so crazy. About 13 years later. Yeah. To the day. Wow. So yeah, it was February 3rd, 2007 when we first found out about this. And that was what really brought everything together for me. I was 30 years old and, uh, and it was like my passion for the arts and my passion for for God and my passion for humanity were all married in this one thing of going out and telling the story of what was happening to people who are being exploited around the world. Mm-hmm. Um, so cool side story to this date. Uh, it was February 3rd, 2007. My wife and I, we went and visit our friends in the hospital who just had a baby. We were just congratulating them. We were on our date, date day. This was on a Saturday. And, uh, and so it was our friend, Julie, who began, began to share with us about this thing of human trafficking. And, you know, we had never heard the term human trafficking. I thought, is this like bad gridlock on the freeway or like what, what, what exactly are we talking about here? She's like, no, 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 like millions of people that are being forced into a lifestyle of essentially systematic rape. And it was just beyond anything that you could wrap your mind around in one conversation. And so... Um, but it was, it was that moment where our hearts were pierced, 
with this issue. And little did we know at that time that this would grow, that burden would grow into something that we would give our entire lives to. But, um, but years later I went and I was speaking up at Bethel in, uh, Northern California, um, a large charismatic church up there. And we were doing some meetings that morning with some of their leaders up there. And, and there was, uh, a human trafficking survivor who I had become friends with that was present and it was her birthday. And I, so I said to her, happy birthday. And, and, um, and she said, uh, she said back to me, she retorted back. She said, happy birthday to you. And I said, happy birthday to me. Like, what do you mean? And, and she said, no, it's your birthday too. I go, no, mine's in November. She goes, no, no, no. She goes, today was the first day that you found out about human trafficking, whatever, you know, X number of years ago. And, uh, and I was like, wait a minute. I go, it's February 3rd. And she's like, yeah. She goes, you know how I know that? And I said, no. She goes, I always remembered it. Cause I heard you tell it in a message once that you first heard about human trafficking on February 3rd, 2007. She goes, I always remembered it. She goes, because on February 3rd, 2007, I was in jail because I wouldn't testify against my trafficker because I was afraid he would kill my son. And she goes, and I got on my knees that day and I prayed, God, will you raise up somebody who will expose this injustice? (laughs) Whoa. I was just like, what? So she's there in jail, human trafficking survivor, praying, God, raise somebody up who will expose this injustice. February 3rd, you know, same day, we go out, have this conversation that snowballs into, you know, Exodus Cry and, and all of our efforts to address trafficking, expose this injustice. And so this date is just a very particularly significant. And yeah, that's just strange that we did not, or- we did not organize this. <laughs> but man, sometimes you just see the fingerprint of God and his providence over the narrative, you yeah. know, when... Yeah, when we say yes and we just start following. Yeah. So that seems to be well, first of all, I have goosebumps. That what an incredible story. And yeah, there's some there's some seems to be something just so pure about just saying yes to Jesus. You know, as I sit and, you know, talk to so many people who are doing just wonderfully radical things, um, there's that common denominator. It's like, yeah, I just said yes, you know, and uh there's I think that's a message that so many people need to hear, you know, when those little, when God like gets a hold of your heart, you know, just say yes. And who knows what's going to happen. Maybe you'll run a ministry and make documentaries. Maybe who knows, but this is such a, such a wonderful thing to just say yes. I see that in the Clapham sec, Wilberforce said yes. And I just see a lot of power in that, but um, it, it takes a lot of the pressure off of it. Yeah. You know, and, um, and so if we can just give up our conceptions of what we think it looks like to be a Christian based on whatever subculture we've been raised in yeah. Yeah. and just posture ourselves with the simplicity of the yes, it's so freeing. Yeah. And, and I, you know, I don't mean to keep going back here, but that was Wilberforce's story of yeah. like, hey, I think I thought this is what it meant to be a Christian. And he really wrestled with yeah. that. Like, doesn't it mean that it should look like this. And he had to go take that to John Newton and say, you know, I, I don't know whether to 
respond to the call of God or to pursue this injustice, going after this injustice. And John Newton's like, yes, <laughs> you know, like, yes, yeah, that is the call of God, That's you right. know? That's right. And, um, but it takes all that pressure out of it. That year, the thing just snowballed. It grew. We started studying and praying into this and it just grew and grew and grew and grew until that fall. We felt like we have got to do something to put mm. feet to our prayers. And right around that time, this, um, lady approached us who was a widow and she said, Hey, I know you don't know me, but God has told me to give you $10,000 to start an organization to fight human trafficking. And that was the seed money that catalyzed us starting Exodus Cry and going on what would be this four-year journey around the world, documenting the global crisis of um, sex trafficking and, uh, and that the fruit of that being embodied in the film Nefarious Merchant of Souls, which is now available for free on YouTube for anybody that would like to see that. It's on our Exodus Cry uh, YouTube channel. It came up on my main page the other day. Nice. Yeah. Come on. I was like, yes, Woo. way to go. Way awesome. to go. Awesome. So how do you sleep at night? I mean, your day job's got you dealing with topics that are so gruesome, so horrific. How do you go home to your family, uh, see your daughter. I mean, how do you, how do you, how do you sleep at night knowing all this and dealing with this every day? Since we're in the spirit of talking about Wilberforce on this <laughs> podcast, we'll just keep going there. Hey, we'll, um, we'll, we'll, we'll title this one the Wilberforce <laughs> podcast. I love it. Keep going. He said, if to be feeling alive to the sufferings of my fellow creatures is to be a fanatic, I'm one of the most incurable fanatics ever to be permitted at large. And, uh, and I, I cite that because, um, you know, to be awakened to an injustice like human trafficking can be all-consuming. And, and I know that for my wife and I, it, it arrested us and with, a, with a burden and that we, you know, we, we labored with in the place of, of intercession and just groaning and weeping. Um, this happened a year after we got married. So the first 12 years, 13 years of our marriage was really like dedicated to this issue. And, um, and it's just now that we're like rebooting a new marriage where we're actually like, let's be a married couple and not just, <laughs> you know, because it's, it is like all consuming. And, and it's been such a journey of, of trying to, to walk this out. There's no manual for it, you know, and you're not expecting it. And, um, but, uh, you know, I know in your experience, you've been places, you've seen things where it just, it haunts you. And, and for a long time, it was one of those things where you go, you put your head down to go to rest at night and you think, how can I even sleep when this is happening to somebody out there? And, um, and so there's definitely times where I've tried to carry this in my own strength and been crushed by it. And I think the lesson that we've learned over these years is that his yoke is, is easy, you know, and his burden is light. And so it is one of those things of just, there's such high burnout and, 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 fighting something like this. And it's kind of a, a daily thing of having to 
um, you know, release or put this burden back on the Lord and, and walk in step with him. And, and so, um, I mean, that's, yeah, there's a lot, there's a lot to say about that. But, um, I think that, uh, for us, it's just, it's been a journey of, of really, you know, figuring it out and, and also seasons too. Like there are seasons of birthing. There are seasons, you know, of where, where the burden's going to be heavier. And then there are seasons where the Lord's like, okay, now step back from the front lines, come back to the general's tent and, you know, rest, refresh, strategize, and then go back out again. And so, um, I think, yeah, just learning to abide and, and not run too far ahead or, or get too far behind and, um, but what, trying to walk in step with, with the Lord as we, as we confront this day by day. What's your spiritual rhythm look like? How do you relate to God? How do you hear his voice? How do you get wisdom, discernment in making decisions about the organization and the implications those will have on people's lives around mm-hmm. the world? Mm-hmm. What does that look like? Patience, I think. Um, my tendency as a type A kind of driven go-getter personality is to just go, go, go. Um, in the years leading up to the birthing of Exodus Cry, it actually kind of laid everything that I was doing down. And I was on the night watch of this 24-7 prayer movement and just really just building a, a root system in the Word of God and just waiting on Him for hours and hours and hours a day in prayer. And that, I think, was a really important part of my own personal preparation of like learning how to wait on the Lord and how to wait on God. And, um, because yeah, with something like this, it is one of those things where it's like, see, do, you know, and, and, um, but also the stakes are higher. And so it, that's not really a good way (laughs) to, to walk this out. And so, um, so I think patience, like realizing that getting the quote unquote word of the Lord doesn't always happen in a moment. Oftentimes it happens over a season. It happens over months where over time you begin to get a sense of a direction. You begin to get a sense of what God's wisdom will look like in this situation or that situation. And so, um, so yeah, I think that's been, you know, one of the biggest lessons as far as developing my own spirituality is just learning that place of patience and, um, and also just, relating to Jesus differently. Um, I, I think it's such a profound privilege for us to be invited to share in the burden of the uncreated God of the universe and what he's carrying. And there was this really formative prophetic experience that this young woman, Jennifer Toledo, had um, some years back that inspired me. She was uh, in prayer. She was taken up in a vision to heaven and to the Father's house. And uh, and in this vision, she was taken to all these different rooms in this, you know, in the Father's house. And there was the spiritual wine cellar where people were becoming intoxicated in the presence of God. And there was the spiritual library where people were stimulating their minds and the knowledge of God. And then there was the intimacy chamber. And um, it was adorned with the most beautiful things in the entire household. And, 
And while she's in there and she's admiring this intimacy chamber, she sees this little wooden hatch doorway that looks out of place. And Jesus is giving her this escorted tour. And she says to Jesus, what's over there? And, she's, and he says, oh, he says, that room is where I spend most of my time. He said, um, but he said, but very few people will go in that room. She said, uh, you have to be very, he, he said to her, you have to be very low to get through the door. And, um, and so her curiosity was awakened. And she said, well, if that's where you spend most of your time, I want to see what's in that room. And so all these other rooms were populated with people. And, but she said they, they went, he took her over to this little wooden hatch door. They crawled through the door, went down a little sp spiral door case, and nobody was in this room. She said there was a solitary chair and it was windows all the way around. And she said, when Jesus took his seat in that chair, he suddenly you could see every injustice on the planet all at once. You could hear every single groaning of the prisoner, of the person being raped or violated. You could hear and see every injustice all at once. And she said that room uh, was called the weeping room. And, and yeah, so when she asked him, you know, what, what is that room? He said, that, that room's where I spend most of my time. You have to be, get very low to get through the door. Not many people will go there. It's called the weeping room. And she said, um, she began to weep. She said, he spent hours and hours and hours in that chair. And she said, she began to weep. And she began to weep, not just because of the injustice, but because of this beautiful king who had spent his time in that place. Mm. And I think of the Garden of Gethsemane where, you know, Jesus is about to pay the ultimate price for sin and he's feeling the weight of that. And what does he do? He invites his closest friends to be with him in that moment of anguish and they all fall asleep. And so I just think what a privilege for us to be invited into that place of intimacy to bear the burden of the Lord regarding this um, unspeakable injustice that is happening to his creation. And so I, I think prior to this, I would have interpreted my Christianity as something to believe rather than somebody to become. And I was very preoccupied with having all of my theological T's crossed and I's dotted. But I have come to believe that God cares much more about relational integrity than he does theological accuracy. Mm. And that I've, as, as I've gone on this journey, I don't feel that same pressure to know what I believe about Calvinism versus free Arminianism or free will versus that, you know, or all these doctrinal things that we get caught up and spend so much time and energy on. I really feel like I'm too busy about my father's business and just, yeah, just trying to you know, respond out of that love and compassion of Christ to the vulnerability of those around us, and particularly those who, um, whose vulnerabilities are being exploited in the commercial sex industry. So I, my faith is a profound part and central uh, of, of my, my journey in this and a central part of, of how we go about combating this Exodus cry. Wow, love that. That's good stuff. What an incredible vision. Where, where, where did that happen now? It was this young woman, Jennifer Toledo. She now leads um, a church called Expression 58 up in Los Angeles. Oh, in LA. Yeah. Okay. But, but this uh, happened back in... This happened a while ago when she went to Africa. She was 
going to emptying hospitals, just pray, praying for people. And God was just moving in power wow. on her ministry. And she's got an incredible testimony, but this was an experience that she had. And it just, yeah, it just really put a vision in my heart of like, what's important, you know, yeah. our, the longer I'm alive, the more I realize our life is a vapor. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to stand before him one day. Mm-hmm. And there's so many things that I could have given myself to, but the ultimate currency is the relationship that we build with Christ. And I think the most intimate way to build that relationship is by caring about the things that he cares about. So, man, I mean, that sounds cliche, but it's really real. And it's, yeah, it's, it's the, it's the ultimate, um, experience of being human. I agree. What is, uh, what's your biggest success story with Exodus Cried? Is there one like person or, you know? Uh, I mean, I, there's, I feel like in this work, there are so many more failures than there are successes. <laughs> so we definitely cherish those moments where we have a high point or a, yeah. a victory. And um, so we work in, historically we've worked in four different capacities of this fight. And today we work in three. So we, we work in the realm of um, social reform, um, legislative reform, intervention and outreach, and aftercare. And so we have, um, we ended up uh, moving on from a lot of the aftercare initiatives that we were doing and safe homes that we were operating because we really felt like that was something that was all consuming and required a level of dedication that was difficult for us to manage while doing these other things. And so I think that's pretty natural for organization to grow through evolutions and growth where you really... you know, start to dial in on the bullseye of, of what you're called to in a unique way. And so today, yeah, it's these two things of abolition and, out, and intervention. The abolition side is expressed through social and, and legal reform. And, um, and, and I, we've seen incredible victories in every single one of the aspects that we're working in. So with the social reform, you know, when we released Nefarious, it opened up doors for us to impact and influence nations at the highest levels of government all over the world. And it's uh, amazing. Time would elude us to go into all of that, but it literally led us into closed door meetings with the leaders of nations all over the world, including right here in the United States, um, meetings at the White House, meetings, you know, multiple invitations to speak at the United Nations. Um, and so, and then with Liberated, we got one of the best deals you could possibly hope for from Netflix that gave us a huge platform to impact culture. And uh, we did a campus um, tour to the Oxford and Berkeley and Cambridge and the, the best universities of our world and to meet and engage in the ferment of the culture with young adults and students and um, you know, won uh, dozens of film festival awards and written up in uh, all kinds of mass media articles, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So the social influence part has been profound. We get testimonies, I would say still weekly, of people who have been impacted by our films and wow. changed their lives in some way, shape, or form. Um, a lot of them like literally changed their life where they were doing one thing and they stopped it in about face and now they're pursuing a degree in such and such or mm-hmm. starting an organization. And so 
Um, and then uh, in a work of legal reform, we have developed what I believe is the most cutting edge um, legislation right now being considered in the United States. Um, we developed this legislation some years ago, and um, and I, I think we're poised right now to see this pass through the House, but it's the Sex Trafficking Demand Reduction Act um, and uh, would be a massively significant um, uh, step forward in the fight against trafficking globally and the implication that would have for the, literally the nations. And so um, getting that passed would be a huge legislative victory for us. But I mean, we one example of a legislative victory is like we went up to Canada, the sex uh, workers, um, the sex, uh, pro-sex movement was lobbying heavily in Canada for the passing of legislation that would fully decriminalize prostitution. They wanted to have brothels and, and the whole nine yards and roll out the red carpet for the sex industry in Canada. We went up there by invitation and met with the parliament, screened nefarious. They pressed pause in their plans, said, give us a year to research what you guys are saying. They did a year investigation into our claims that this would lead to greater sex trafficking, mm -hmm. that it was, you know, going to be... Uh, harmful for their country and, and um, for the women. And, and uh, they came back a year later and they did a full study. They were released as, as, as like a peer reviewed kind of like journal and said, you know, what basically what you guys were saying was right. They did a 180 degree turn and they ended up adopting the Nordic model of legislation, the, the abolition model, um, which uh, criminalizes the purchase of sex, criminalizes brothel keeping, pimping, all those things that they wanted to, that the sex workers' rights movement wants to advance. And um, we call them the pimp lobby because really what it does is give is give rights to, all the rights to the pimps. So, so that was a huge legislative victory. Um, and then in the realm of intervention, you know, one of the things that pops out, we have, I think we have like our, the best people working in every aspect of what we do in the world. I really believe that. I'm probably biased, but um, our director of, of uh, intervention wrote the book and the manual on how to do intervention, okay. which was learned over years. And uh, this past uh, year, we uh, penetrated a Nigerian trafficking ring and brought the traffickers to justice um, and eradicated really a whole pipeline of trafficking that was happening into Moscow. Um, but I mean, there's testimonies literally every single month of um, women whose lives are being impacted by being brought out of this or um, uh, we do outreach to men as well, men averting men who, uh, who are going to purchase women or bringing traffickers to justice. And so, uh, yeah, there's there's been a lot of uh, breakthrough. But again, I say you know that with a sobriety and, and a humility because it is an uphill battle. Yeah. And um, like I think of uh, this one time that we went down to Costa Rica because we had a tip that there was child sex trafficking going on down in Haco Beach. And we went down there, we went to this place, the Beetle Bar, and we were looking around and you know we didn't see any children who were being trafficked after about an hour. And so we were gonna leave. And, and as we're getting ready to leave, I see this girl across the room who looks like she's about 12 years old. She was a tiny little thing. I mean, she couldn't have been five feet tall. And, and right as I spot her, I see this man making his way towards her who's like 6'8", 280 pounds, shaved head, just this huge man. And uh, so I beeline it over there 
step in front of him and I just quickly said, you know, how much for your time paid to take her out and one other girl and we get them across the street and, you know, we say, hey, look, we're not here for sex or anything like that. We just, you know, we want to just uh, share with you that, you know, God loves you and, and he's got a plan for your life and, you know, that kind of thing. And so, so we end up having this conversation with them and we ask, you know, can we pray for you? We pray for them. The young girl, the 12-year-old-ish, starts crying. And after I'm done praying, she stands in front of me and she starts saying this thing in Spanish over and over. And she got tears coming down her face. And I said um, to our translator, I said, you know, what is she saying? She said, she's saying, you're an angel. You're an angel. You're an angel over and over. And I said, well, ask her why she's saying that. And so the translator asks her and she says, he's an angel because tonight was my first night and he was my first customer. And I felt like God sent him here to, for me. And um, so situations like that where, you know, you don't, when you, like we talked about earlier, when you, we say yes, it's, it's a simple thing. And, um, you know, oftentimes we feel like we have to have the, the best plans, the most innovation, the wisest strategy, the most cutting edge social media, whatever. But, you know, God didn't choose the most educated or the most qualified. He just chose people who were going to say yes. Mm-hmm. And like, I feel so unqualified. But every time we say yes to something that feels too big, too, too, you know, too, the gravity is too intense, the situation too dangerous, whatever, whatever, we always see where God works in miraculous ways to bring about breakthrough. And um, it's not always what we think it will look like, but, uh, but you know, we, every, every breakthrough is uh, significant because we hold such a high regard for human life. And I think that's, that's the message of the gospel really is that all life is infinitely valuable. And so, you know, Mother Teresa going, had I not picked up that one child in Calcutta, I never would have picked up the 40,000. Mm-hmm. Like, I think it was just a simple yes of like, I got to pick up this child because this child needs a hug. And then, you know, your heart expands a little bit and then you pick up the next one and the next one and the next one. And, you know, Mother Teresa, when she's 15 years old, she wasn't Mother Teresa. She was just somebody who started to care yeah. because of the gospel about human life. And that's that's all of our journeys. And so... Um, we don't man we don't substantiate our work based on the breakthroughs but they're awesome when they happen because all life is so valuable what are the telltale signs of someone who's being trafficked i know with the super bowl they they say that's obviously the sex industry goes off any time that happens i feel like it's always in the news and um just traveling internationally there's um there've been almost like public service announcements of, uh, you know, what to look for. What, mm-hmm. what do you see? Um, are, are you like, you noticed a 12 year old girl and said mm-hmm. you knew. So how, how can, how can we know when we're traveling, when we're on vacation and other parts of the world? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, a couple of thoughts. Uh, that's a really good question. Um, one thought is that every trafficking survivor will tell you that, they would have made sure that nobody knew they were being trafficked when they were being trafficked. And so the idea that we can all just kind of get this new pair of glasses that will enable us to see 
when people are being trafficked, I don't think is very realistic. I think that it's very, very difficult to detect trafficking situations, and that's partly why we developed an entire curriculum and manual mm-hmm. to, to educate people, um, because it is very, there's a, there's a, it's, yeah, there's a, it's difficult, you know, and um, so, but the other thing to say about that is just to understand that anywhere where there's demand, there's going to be trafficking happening. And it doesn't always look like what we think it's going to look like. But um, demand is everywhere today, right? Because of the hardwiring of the planet through the internet and the mass spread of pornography is awakening this illicit sexuality. And, uh, and so men are by the droves, not a few bad apples here and there, but there is a, there is a cultural reality taking shape around the nations of men looking for sex on demand, um, prostitution. And so any time that's happening, there are going to be third-party interested parties who are exploiting that demand for profit. And, uh, and so like in Las Vegas, you know, is a city that's iconic for the, ver- you know, the idea of, of the high-class escort. But we did a documentary on that, which we haven't released yet, but the reality is, is that it's all undercurrent of trafficking and the people in prostitution, they're told us like, even if somebody had the bright idea that they're going to come here and be this independent free agent, you know, high class escort, they would get immediately taken by a pimp. It just won't happen. Like it's, it's an extremely naive thing to believe that that could happen when there's this whole infrastructure of organized crime that's running this. And you, you think those guys are just going to allow you to go do that? Like, no, that's not going to happen. And, um, and so, um, but like I said, it, it, it has different, it looks different in different places. You know, in Kansas City, there was a bust where there was a, a stepfather who had worked out an agreement with a local, it was this, um, one of those places you see on the side of the freeway that like sells DVDs and stuff, you know, mm-hmm. XXX video or whatever. Well, that place had a basement and this stepfather made an agreement to allow men um, to come down there and and uh, and purchase his step his fourteen year old stepdaughter for sex, so he had a train of these men coming twenty five men before he was busted, but that was just one instance of one thing that we know about where would that guy would anybody look at that guy and go oh here's a trafficker no, mm-hmm. but he was exploiting the vulnerability of his stepdaughter for profit that's trafficking right. and so it takes has many shapes and faces and, and, and it looks different in different cities. I think the, pe- the important thing for people to understand is that in all likelihood, trafficking is going on in your city. Mm-hmm. In all likelihood, there is a demand. There is trafficking going on. I mean, there's an organization out of Kansas City that we've done some work with where they started to go into communities, church communities, school communities, and to educate people about the predatory tactics of traffickers and the way that they prey on and groom young women to go into prostitution. Every single one of these communities they went into, while they were doing this training, it turned out that there were currently people in that community who were being groomed to be trafficked and did not know it. Um, There was one pimp who said, uh, he said, you know, there, he said, these girls have no chance against a guy like me. 
because we eat, sleep, think, dream, breathe ways to take advantage of them and get them to do what we want. So these guys are literally spending, mm -hmm. it's hard to transport ourselves into a criminal mindset like that. Like we're, you know, most of us are not thinking at home, how can I go online and coerce a 14 year old girl by the time she's 16 to come work for me in the strip club, you know, and bring all the money home. Like, it's just not, you know, I, like I'm, it's not on our radar, but for the men who have crossed that threshold into a criminal way of life, that is what they're doing. They are, and so they're working overtime to figure out how to exploit those vulnerabilities. And um, so it's very difficult to say like, just this or that will, you know, help you spot somebody who's being trafficked. Um, it's, it goes a bit uh, deeper than that. Um, you know, there are situations, you know, and you can see it more overtly in places like Eastern Europe where there's, we came across situations where it's like, oh, okay, there, there's, that's a certain situation where somebody's clearly being trafficked. Um, and, uh, but I think people over here in the West tend to be a little bit more careful, but, um, but there are, I mean, I, you know, go out to any track in any city and it's not hard to find the pimps. Mm -hmm. I mean, you, they're, they're out there. And, uh, but again, I mean, it's such a huge can of worms to open and that's why we do the training. We're launching our first ever abolition training intensive school this summer. Uh, actually, it's in September, this September up in Lake Tahoe. Uh, we're only uh, bringing in a smaller group for this, uh, of people that can apply to come to it, but it's going to be a very, it's called Activate. It's going to be a very hands-on, um, week-long training in Lake Tahoe on how to fight trafficking for people who are very, very serious about it. It's not for the, the conference goer, it's for the person who knows they want to be a career abolitionist. Wow. And um, so for anybody that's interested in that, again, just track with us on Exodus Cry. And um, we're going to be issuing a, an announcement for that, an application for people to fill out that would like to be involved. And um, we're going to have, yeah, it's, it's going to be amazing that's weeks. That's awesome. So, but yeah. Very cool. Um, talk to... Uh, on, on your website, you've got uh, Becoming an Abolitionist Yourself. Talk to us about that campaign and how has that yeah. been going? Yeah, that was part of our, again, our evolution, our growth as an organization. At the 10-year mark, we felt like we got a really clear strategy for how to build a roadmap to bring an end to this. And so there's a lot of saber rattling that goes on in the anti-trafficking movement and a lot of stories that are put out um, that are more sensational in nature or emphasizing, you know, one aspect of this, like rescuing a girl or something like that. And, and, you know, to some extent we're all for that. Obviously we want to see people get rescued and, but I think that, um, we also need to be asking a question of how are we going to bring an end to this and how are we going to pull this up by the root? And so we spent years like, plaguing ourselves with that question and swimming upstream and really trying to figure this out. And it was around our 10-year mark that we felt like we got a real clear roadmap for how to bring an end to global sex trafficking. And, um, 
and to deal a death blow to break the back of global sex trafficking. And so that's what spawned the idea of, okay, we need to um, create a conversion point for people, sort of the bottom of the funnel, so to speak, um, to come right into this. And that, so that's what the idea of become an abolitionist started is we don't want just people to care about this or give money to this or raise awareness to this. We want all those things. We actually want to invite people to become abolitionists. Yeah. And, um, and so we created um, a whole structure to our website that enables and empowers people towards that end. The, the training component is a big part of that. That's what the idea of the school came out of. Um, where we decided strategically that we don't want to just be on the front lines doing the work anymore, that we want, you know, we'll continue that, but we want to, we want to multiply and our efforts. And so that's where the idea of, of inviting people to become abolitionists, doing a training school, um, to multiply our efforts across the globe to fulfill this, what we believe is like a global mandate and a roadmap to bring an end to this. So there's some real nuts and bolts to that, but that's kind of like the big picture reality. And so the website experience I think is amazing now for people. It really is. Um, just super simple and like, yeah. yeah. So. Benji, you're an abolitionist. Uh, I, I can't thank you enough. Make sure to uh, check out the website, exoscry.com yeah. on all the socials, I'm sure. And uh, yeah, man, I, I just, uh, I admire your work, man. I, I'm so encouraged. Likewise. And I'm so stoked you're living right up the street now. So <laughs> let's surf together and be totally. abolitionists together. Totally. God awesome. bless you, brother. Yeah. Thank you so Thanks, much. Joel. Yeah, right, it's great.